Amen. I love singing the story about how it all ends, especially when we're preaching about how it all really began, the beginning of Jesus's life and his birth narrative. I want to re- invite you to continue standing. Let me read for you our text from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read through verse 12. Listen now to God's word. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went from them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's stop there. Please have a seat. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful picture of the birth of Jesus, how it all began. This story is really a story of different hearts responding to the birth of the king in different ways. And this story, actually, I want to set it up for you by telling you about uh, the, uh, an incident where I saw this very thing play out before my eyes just, uh, just over a week ago. Just over a week ago, I went to visit a a family in this church, a a sweet couple where the gal is actually, she was getting ready for surgery. And so I just went to go spend some time with them before surgery and to pray with them. And I went in there and it was uh, unlike right now, which is kind of calm outside, but it was a a stormy day. And so I had a hat on, I had a rain jacket on, and I had under my rain jacket, my, this nice warm UW sweater, right? beautiful purple, just a bright gold W right here. Just looks awesome. And, and the family I was visiting, well, they, uh, they went to that other school. I don't, I don't even remember its name, right? That other Washington school. So anyway, I go into their house and, uh, you know, I take off my hat and I hang it on their little rack. And then I take off my jacket and hang it on the rack. And I turn around and they just see this glowing W. And the wife goes, oh no, not that shirt. She was, uh, uh, she had like an aversion to success, I think, or, or like, you know, like, because you know, you dub, they are now the eternal Pac-12 champions. I mean, they're just like, yeah, oh, you want to applaud? That's great. But, but you know, here's the deal, though. In that moment, they had one response. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe there's a sports team that you love, and whenever you see their logo or their branding, you're like, oh, that's my, that's my team, right? Maybe there's a sports team that you hate, Yankees, and whenever you see their logo, you just respond with like this, oh gosh, I can't stand them. 
But what we see in kind of the fun, modern-day sports world is actually a mirror of this incredible moment where some respond to Jesus one way, and some respond to Jesus in a completely different way. In fact, this is what we're going to see today. Today, as we look at this text, we're going to walk through each verse of it. What I want you to see is that King Jesus, King Jesus brings either worship or worry to the human heart. This is the reality. Jesus' birth, he was not born just to be a, an infant that we celebrate and light candles for. This text makes it clear he was born as a king. He was born of, as the king, and being the king, the king, what we have is we have a, a world where people respond generally in one or two ways. Maybe that's true of the, those in this room. Maybe as we are singing about King Jesus this morning, your heart was just overwhelmed, remembering who he is and, and basking in his glory and, and being grateful toward him. If that's you, I, I'm so thankful that you respond to Jesus with worship. Maybe there are some in this room and you, you haven't quite figured out what you believe about Jesus. Maybe the, the proposition that Jesus is the king of your life is a little bit fearful for you. You realize that's going to mean change. You realize that's going to mean that you are not in charge of your life. You don't do what you want. You're to do what he wants. And maybe it brings a sense of worry. There certainly are those outside of this room in this world that, that resist him in, in major ways. And so today, I want us to examine this text. I want us to examine these responses. And, and at the end, I want to introduce you to a third way that maybe we respond to Jesus as king, that maybe without realizing it is, is where you actually find your heart. So with that said, let's open up our text. Matthew chapter 2, will you open up the Bible with me? We're going to look at the, the worship of those who were outside of Judaism, these magi from the east. We're going to look at the worry of the inside of those in Judaism, Herod and the Jewish religious leadership. And then ultimately, we are going to look at the worth of King Jesus and what it looks like to honor him. Let's dive in. Let's start with the outsiders. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the king of the Jews, Jesus, the king of the Jews. We're going to see that he is worshipped by outsiders who seek him. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now this text begins with the where and the when of Jesus' birth. It begins with the where, Bethlehem of Judea. This is the city of David's birth. This is a, a small city, uh, almost six miles outside of Jerusalem. And we find when he was born. Now, as moderns, we date these ancient times. And at one point in, in history, there was a, a, an intentional dating that made the way we viewed history revolve around the birth of Jesus. You know, up until Jesus' birth, it's B.C., and then after Jesus' birth is the year of our Lord, A.D., right? Well, when that decision was made, they might not have had the most accurate of dating. Because we find that Jesus was born in the reign of King Herod, Herod the Great. 
And what we do know is Herod the Great, he reigned B.C. from 37 to 4 B.C. So we think Jesus was born at zero, but he was probably born maybe 5 B.C. or so, right around there. This is when he was born. And the, the situation of his birth resulted in a star rising where these wise men, these, these magi from the east, they see it. And they come to bring worship to the king of the Jews. Now, I, I just want to remind us of a few theological realities that we see hinted at in this text. And we'll get back to the text and we'll explore it fully. But, but this reminds us, first of all, that nations, the nations, they long for blessing in Christ. God has designed the world in such a way that he chose the nation of Israel. He chose them to be a nation that the other nations would be blessed by. And so this is, this is a picture of these, these wise men who are not Jewish. They do not worship the one true God. They're likely pagan, probably polytheistic, or maybe they believe in a one true God that's different than the one true God. But the, the point is they are not insiders. They're outsiders who are seeking the blessing of the Christ. Now, who were these magi specifically? Well, there's not a lot of details on them. They likely were wealthy. They may have been royal, but that's not entirely clear. They were very learned men. They were learned in all sorts of different traditions and different ideas. They, they understood astrology to such a degree that when a, when a star rose, they understood that God, the one true God, was giving a sign that they are to come and worship this one that has been born. These are likely those who also were uh, skilled in magic. This reminds us that the world is full of all sorts of mystical powers. We, we in our modern sensibility, we're overwhelmed with the material and we forget about the mystic that exists. But these men, they likely were part of, uh, connected to the spiritual world, which is not just the one true God, but the spiritual world that also exists, which is the, the evil one who stands against the one true God. This is probably who they were. You see men like this described in Daniel chapter 2. When the king has his dream and he, he demands, the, he's told his dream and in this interpretation of his dream, Daniel chapter 2 says, When the king commanded that the, the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers be summoned to tell the king his dreams, this is the kind of person the magi were. There's another passage in the New Testament that actually speaks about magi. It's translated magician. If you were to look at Acts chapter 13, as the apostles are going forth and they're sharing the gospel, what you find, Acts chapter 13, verse 6, it says, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Pamphos, they came upon a certain magi, magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. This is, this is a picture of these magi from the east that come. These are those who, they, they're not aligned with the one true God, but they are aware of the spiritual world in such a way that God, for his sovereign purposes, decided to show these magi a star so that they would come. They would come. This is because God has placed that heart, that desire in the nations this is actually the promise that we find being fulfilled in Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' genealogy. Jesus' genealogy, it says that he is the son of Abraham. Do you remember the, the promise to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? 
God says to Abraham, he says, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, in Abraham, in Israel by extension, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God's intent has always been to draw the nations to come to worship. God's intent has always been to include those who were not even Jewish. But we don't just see this this desire in the hearts of nations. We see that actually nature itself testifies to the creator who is Christ. Let me just remind you of these truths. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The scripture actually reminds us of something that we inherently know. When you go and you look at, when you look at the vastness of the sea or the beauty of a sunset or a sunrise or the massiveness of a mountain range, when you're looking at the created world, you know what it's doing? It is declaring the glory of God. God has created the world in such a way to show that he, in fact, is the creator. Colossians chapter 1 expands on this. Colossians 1 verse 16, speaking of Christ, says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and to him or for him. This is who Christ is. He is the one who has had his hand upon creation, who has now been born of a virgin. In fact, this desire, the desire the nations have for blessing in Christ, the the reality that nature shows us that there is a creator, God makes it even more clear in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, listen. Listen to what God says about what he has done for every person who has ever walked the face of this earth. Romans 1 begins like this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This says that all of mankind has done what? Suppressed, pushed aside, pushed away the truth. Now, what is the truth that they've suppressed? Look at the next verse. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Continue in the text. Because God has shown it to them. God has shown every person something about himself. What has he shown? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God says when any person looks at the world that he has made, they can know that there is this this divine nature, this, this eternal power that exists behind the creation of all things. Look at the end of that verse. So they are without excuse. What about the atheist? What about the person who says, I, I don't see any evidence of God? That The Bible makes clear. This is the person that ignores the evidence that is right in front of their face. The, the heavens declare the glory of God right in front of us. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
this is the state of all humanity outside of Christ. When we rebel against God and we do not give him thanks, what we choose to do instead is exalt ourselves. And it says that our, our thinking becomes weakened, it becomes futile, and our hearts become darkened. They, our passions are aimed at the wrong thing. So this is, this is the world that God has made. And, and so in creation, just over 2,000 years ago, the God of creation, when he allowed Christ to be born, when, when Christ was born into the world, he sent a star to testify to these, these pagan magicians who worshiped for false gods. There's meant to be just so much irony in this. Here, here's what Matthew is showing us. He's showing us that those who should not be included, those outsiders, those, those guys way out there that we would look down on, look, they are being included as those who are coming to worship. And then in contrast, the king of the Jews worries insiders who resist him. The outsiders who sink, seek him, they come and worship. But look with me, verse 3, the king of the Jews worries the insiders who resist him. Verse 3. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now this is, this is not there's a new sheriff in town. This is there's a new king in town. This new king, Jesus, who brings a brand new reign over the world. And what I want you to see is for those who resist King Jesus, the reign of King Jesus is met with all sorts of different responses. First of all, Jesus' reign upsets those who do not honor him. Look at verse 3. Look at how Herod responds. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me King Herod. At this point, he's been reigning for 30-ish years. And in his reign, he has proven himself to be a great king over Jerusalem in many ways. He has built and, and designed architecture that has just been wonderful. He has had some military feats that have set him apart. But he he's also has some things about him that would show that he is not the most wonderful king in Israel. First of all, he's, his kingship is because he collaborated with the Romans. He, he, is, he is a Roman sympathizer. He teams up with those that the Jewish people would say, this is, a, this is not a great man. Secondly, he's not of pure Jewish blood. He, his bloodline, he is an Idumean, which means he's a descendant of Edom, an Edomite, which means he's not actually fully Jewish, and so his claim to be in the Jewish king would be questioned. But more than any of that, he's incredibly paranoid. Herod is known for killing three of his sons in his worry that they would 
take his place as king. He, he murdered one of his wives. He, he was not a king that was greeted with great affection by the people, so much so that when he was about to die, he had many of the noble families that lived, the noble Jewish families that lived in Jerusalem, he had them arrested and he gave instructions that at the moment that he died, these nobles were to be executed. Here's why. So that there would be mourning in Jerusalem at his death. Because he knew they would not mourn if it was just him that died. This is the king that these magi show up to his front porch and they say, Hey, where's the new king? Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? The text says that he was troubled. This idea of troubled is the idea of being disturbed, to be greatly agitated. It even has a sense of, of to be thrown into confusion. See, when Herod hears, hears that the, the new king has been born, he doesn't have a heart of worship. He, he's not genuinely saying, oh, I want to go worship this king. Rather, his heart is troubled. He's disturbed. See, Jesus' reign, it upsets those who resist him. But secondly, Jesus' reign, it confronts those who do not honor him. It's not only that it upsets them. Look with me, verses 4 through 6. Some incredible things happening here as the Old Testament is quoted in fulfillment. It says, and assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people. These are all of those who are knowledgeable about the Old Testament Torah, the, the law and the prophets. It says, he inquired of them when the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem, excuse me, where? And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now it's interesting, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they come back and they say, here's, here's what we know from the Old Testament. And they quote, they, they paraphrase two separate passages. They kind of just combine two separate passages in a paraphrase. The first one is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, 2 reads, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. They quote this passage, speaking about this little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, it's not even big enough to be considered a clan of the people, but they say that the ruler of Israel is going to come out of that. And notice it says the ruler is from ancient of days. This is the, this is the ruler that has been long expected. This is just not another ruler in the line of kings, some good and some bad. This is the one from ancient of days. This is the Messiah. This is the God in the flesh, Christ. They quote this passage as well as 2 Samuel chapter 5. After King Saul has died and David is being placed as the true king of Israel. 2 Samuel 5 verse 2 says this, In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you, David who led us out in battle and brought in Israel. You were the one who led us. You were the one who helped us to conquer. And the Lord said to you, 
You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be a prince over Israel. Now, this is fascinating. Because these two Old Testament texts that are quoted, speaking of Jesus' birth, they bring a contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. You have King Jesus in Bethlehem, this small town on the outskirts, contrasted with King Herod in his palace with prestige and wealth and power. But it's not just Herod and Jesus that are contrasted. Look at the contrast between King David and King Saul. You have King Saul, the failed king who did not honor God, and King David, the true king, the king after God's own heart. Look at this. This is the same contrast between Jesus and Herod. You have Herod, who has not been a shepherd to the people. No, he's been a collaborator with the Romans. He has sought after power and prestige and position, and he has not served the people well. But now you have the king, the true king, born, who is Jesus, who will what? Shepherd the people of Israel. This is a condemnation. This is a confrontation of the failed leadership of the fake king, Herod, who is standing in contrast with the one true king, King Jesus, who's just been born. This is what Jesus' reign does. Jesus' reign, it upsets those who do not honor him. But secondly, Jesus' reign, it confronts those who do not honor him. But look, the text continues. And what we see third is that Jesus' reign is used or maybe abused by those who do not honor him. I mean, you don't know anyone who uses Jesus' name for their own purposes, do you? Look at the text. Verse 7, and Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And they sent to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod goes from being worried to letting his cunningness and his conniving kick in. Uh, Herod would be someone who would quote some of our modern-day politicians, never let a crisis go to waste, right? Here's what he's saying. Let's use this as a moment to our advantage. Let's find out where he is for our nefarious purposes. Now, you've probably never seen this in the world today. You've probably never seen in a church, church leadership use the, the Jesus card to protect their power, and to make sure people fall in line and are manipulated by them? You've probably never seen that before. You've probably never seen a politician connect his ideologies to Jesus, even though they're not out of the Bible, and, and to say, we have God on our side because we have Jesus. You've probably never seen it in a family where a father or a mother might manipulate and abuse with the Jesus juke card. I'm sure you've seen it. We've all seen it. It's been happening for so long. People use Jesus for their own purposes. That's exactly what Herod does here. He uses Jesus. Now, I want to move on to the next text, but before I do, I want to just pause for a moment because we've seen a few contrasts. We've seen the contrast of, of the magi, those who were outsiders who come seeking and worshiping, We've seen that contrasted with, with Herod and the religious leaders who are resistant and do not honor, but rather the, the coming of King Jesus worries them. 
And, and I want you to begin in this moment to examine your own heart. Because, because Jesus being king, we're not talking about this moment of 2,000 years ago and this cute little infant that was born. I just want to begin to have you consider Jesus being king of your life right now. The king who sets up his throne in, in your heart. The king who determines how you live. He, the king who determines the decisions that you make. The king who set forth, forth the behavior that you exhibit. The king that should own every thought as you take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let me ask you, is this the king that you follow? Or do you have moments in your life where you try to push Jesus off the throne and you say, Jesus, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be king today. I'm going to make my life about me. See, this is the king. I just want to remind us. This is the king who calls us to live sacrificially instead of selfishly. This is the king who calls us to be humble instead of exalting ourselves in arrogance. This is the king who calls us to look out for what is best for others instead of looking for ways we can use others to do what is best for us. Now, we'll return to those questions in a moment. But let's go back to our text. Because here's what we have. We have Jesus, the king of the Jews, is worshipped by outsiders. Jesus, the king of the Jews, he worries the insiders. But now we get to verses 9 through 12. And what I want us to see ultimately is the king of the Jews, he is worthy of honor. He is worthy of honor. Look at verse 9. It says, After listening to the king, they, the magi, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, let's examine the kind of honor that Jesus is worthy of in this moment. Let's examine what his honor causes in the life of these magi who have traveled a far distance to come and bring worship. First of all, I want you to see his honor causes joy. Look at the text, verse 9. It says, they, they listened to the king, they went on their way, they saw the star again, and it rose before them. They saw that it came to rest over the house where Jesus was. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, Matthew's being rather repetitive here. He could have just said they rejoiced exceedingly. He could have just said they had great joy, but notice what he says. He says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, this kind of, this kind of unmeasured response, it, it reminds me of, uh, uh, well, honestly, a time in my teenage years. In my teenage years, there would be times when my parents would leave me home alone with my brothers, and, uh, and my parents, they had a killer sound system. They had an amazing TV, and they had a, a wonderful sound system with all of the speakers that went along with it. And so here's the deal. When my parents were gone and I was home alone, I would play my music so that my entire neighborhood could enjoy it. None of you teens do that today, I'm sure, right? Here's what I would do. 
I, I would find whatever music I was listening to of the day, and I would turn up the, uh, the receiver. I would turn it up all the way. And then you know what I would do after that? I would get into the settings, and I would turn the bass up all the way. So you could feel it in the depth of who you were, right? And, and as this music would play, here's what would happen. I was, I was rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. That's what this text is doing, right? It's saying that they rejoiced exceedingly. They turned the joy lever up all the way. And they didn't just leave it with that. They did it with great joy. They turned the bass up all the way. Now, think about this for a moment. Because we rejoice exceedingly. Not because our team wins the Pac-12 again, you know. We rejoice exceedingly. For the joy of our salvation. Do you remember the joy you had when you trusted in Jesus? I mean, do you remember that moment when, when reality began to sink in on you that you were a rebellious, wicked sinner who stood condemned before a perfect, holy, and righteous God? Do you remember when you began to realize that your sin was actually, it, it was worthy of eternal damnation away from God? When you began to realize that truth, and it's not just that truth that you realize, but you realize that even in your sin and rebellion and wickedness, God still loved you? And he loved you with the kind of love that resulted in him sending his only begotten son to die for you. To die as a sacrifice, paying the price for all of your sin. That this Jesus died and by the power of God was resurrected on the third day so that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. Do you remember the joy that you had when you realized that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? That you had been forgiven, that you had been made new, that you had been adopted, regenerated, redeemed? And that you have a place waiting for you eternally with God in heaven? Do you remember when you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Now, I don't think these wise men trusted the gospel, at least at this point. I don't think they understood the fullness of what this meant. But they knew that there was a new king that was born. And the fact that they could go and be before him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. How much more to us who know the whole story and have been forgiven through his work. His honor causes joy. Secondly, his honor calls for worship. His honor calls for worship. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But let's just examine this worship. The text says that they go in, they find him and his mom, and the, the first thing they do is they fall down. This worship is physical. They don't just be like, hey, Jesus, want to drop off some presents for you. Merry Christmas, we're out. 
They come, these prestigious, powerful, wealthy, learned men, they come, and what do they do? They fall down before an infant in a small town on the outside of the seat of power. It's physical. I just want to consider our worship today. Now, I'm not saying that you need to fall down during worship, that you need to make a spectacle of yourself. But worship is meant to be physical. Worship is not disconnected from our bodies. It's the entirety of who we are. Mind, body, soul, all of who we are is called to worship. This is what these pagan idol worshipers did in this moment when they're confronted with the king who is Jesus. The text says they fall down. Their worship is, is physical. But secondly, their worship is truly spiritual. The, the word it says, it says they worshiped him. This word worship is the word of the idea. It's, it's to humble yourselves and submit yourself completely before an authority. Their worship is they, they bow down before Jesus as the one who is greater than them. There is no pride. There's no arrogance. It is, it is actually the word that could be used of worshiping someone as you lay before them and you kiss their feet. This is the kind of humble worship they showed. Not only is it physical, they fall down, but it is deeply spiritual. It is them humbling themselves before this baby. And third, look, at it. it's generous. Their worship is financial. The text reads, it says, and they, they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, these three gifts described here, this is why tradition says that there were three magi. In fact, after the message, we're going to sing the, the Christmas song, We Three Kings. It's a great song, but listen, there, there probably were more than three. There might have been less than three. We don't know how many they were. But what we know is they bring these gifts Tradition has assigned significance to each of these gifts. I'm not entirely sure if what tradition assigns is actually what is meant, but I think it's worth considering. What are the three gifts? The first is gold. Well, gold is about wealth. All of these gifts were expensive. All of these gifts provided wealth that was needed by this family, as we're going to see next week when they flee to Egypt and back. They're going to need their coffers to be full, and that's what happens. But they bring gold. Gold, wealth. The second is frankincense. Frankincense was actually used in Jewish worship. It potentially has a symbolic reference to the priestly nature of worship. Making us consider that maybe, just maybe, this is reminding us that Jesus is born, not just king, but he is the, the high priest, as Hebrews teaches He's the one who offers the perfect sacrifice to God the Father by offering him very, his very life, him offering himself. And the last one, myrrh, another fragrant ointment. Traditionally, it was used for the embalming of a body after death. Potentially symbolizing the reality of Jesus' sacrifice that his birth was going to lead ultimately to his death. Whether this is the intention of these three gifts, I don't know. But what I can tell you is that these gifts demonstrate true worship before God. 
As these men come and they, they bow down and they worship and they give gifts, they are worshiping Jesus as the true king. See, this honor of Jesus brings or calls for worship. And then finally, I want you to see, verse 12, that his honor continues secure. You see, we, we have this, this question hanging over our mind. What if these wise men go back to Herod and let the cat out of the bag? Here's where you can find Jesus. And what if Herod goes and, and acts his evil plan toward this Messiah? Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See, we know Jesus is born to die. But what we see here is that Jesus dies according to God's timetable. There is no Herod, there is no king, there is no nation, there is no power that threatens the sovereign plan of God. Herod and all of his power can't mess it up. Herod and all of his conniving and all of his plotting, even though he can assassinate his family members and his wife, even though he can call for the assassination of anyone he wants, he cannot take out the anointed one of God because God's sovereign hand keeps Christ secure until the moment that Jesus willingly lays down his life for you and for me. What, what does this story show us? This short story shows us that King Jesus brings one of two things to the human heart. The birth of King Jesus brings either worship or worry. Let me ask you, what, what does it bring to your heart? Don't give me just the, 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 the cheap answer. Oh yeah, of course I'm here to worship him. Uh, no, I, I'm asking you today, will you look deep in your heart? Will you ask the Lord to allow you to examine yourself well? Would you examine yourself? Do you worship King Jesus with your time? Do you worship him with your time? Do you give your hours to work and then you come home and you say, okay, now it's me time and I'm going to do whatever it is that pleases me? Or do you consider, Lord, how do you want me to spend every waking hour? How do you want me to spend my time? Do you worship King Jesus with your mind? Uh, years ago, someone asked this question, and I've just, it always sticks in me. It says, what do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? When you're not at work, when you're not doing a task, what is it that fills your mind? Is it the next TV show or movie that you're going to watch? Is it the video games that you desire to play? Is it the sports that you watch or that you play that you love? Is it your hobbies or your collections? Is it your 401k and your retirement? Is it your greed and your lusts? What is it that, think, that fills your mind when you don't have to think about anything? Is Jesus the king of your mind? See, here's why I asked that. Because earlier I hinted that I think today in our modern world, we have a third response I'm guessing there probably are not many in this room that would say that they are worried about Jesus being king. I'm guessing that most in this room would say that they, they are worshipful at Jesus being the king. But here's the thing I want to ask. I want to ask if maybe, just maybe, your response isn't actually worship, but apathy. I'm wondering if when you and I, if we consider Jesus today, that we have more of an attitude that's like, you know what, been there, done that, Got the t-shirt. 
Here's why. When we talk about Jesus so often, sometimes he becomes common to us. You guys know I'm going to share the gospel every week. You, you, you could tell the moment where I'm making a gospel connection and you can kind of just check out for a few minutes. Oh yeah, I know this part. He's become common to us. War, worship has become common to us. Most of us are in the same room every week. We're not the kind of church that's trying to entertain you to death. Worship is focused on him. And so if worship's focused on him and he's become common to us, worship becomes common to us. The Bible can become common to us. Maybe you've read through it a number of times. Maybe you know most of the stories. Maybe when Mike reads the text, you're like, oh, I, I've heard someone preach on this before. And so it becomes common. And, and we don't really fully engage because we already know it. Prayer becomes common to us. I mean, Jesus already knows what we're going to pray anyway. He's sovereign. He's going to work out his will perfectly. And so prayer becomes something that can be common to us. So instead of having a zealous, earnest passion for worshiping the King Kings and Lord of Lords, we become, without realizing it, more and more like Herod. And we begin to make our life not about King Jesus, but King me. No, you would never go and seek to persecute Jesus. You would not be someone who would want to see Jesus dead or taken out. But here's the deal. Apathy might have taken hold of your heart in such a way that your heart becomes overshadowed, not with the glory of God, but the greed of selfishness. Where you can punch the Jesus box, but really you're not living for him. You're not worshiping him. You, you don't have the stereo system turned up to 11 as you are rejoicing exceedingly with great joy in who Jesus is. Are you truly worshiping him? Are you bowing down before him? Are you humbling yourself before him? Are you offering the entirety of your life? You might open up the treasure chest of your life and you might say, Lord, I don't have much gold and I don't have any frankincense and myrrh, but what I have is yours. Are you truly worshiping him? And not out of guilt. Not out of a sense of you have something you have to earn not out of a, a sense of worry that says, if I'm not good enough, he's not going to like me. No. Are you worshiping him out of the truth of his grace, which he has poured out exceedingly into you and your life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, God, we, we want to worship you. We want to fully worship Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in that, Lord, we come to you right now and we confess. We confess that we, we easily get off course. Father, we confess that the things that you have given us have become common and has led us to live apathetically toward you instead of passionately worshiping you. 
So, Father, as we confess and repent, Father, restore us with your grace. Remind us that it's not about how good we are, but rather the goodness you've shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, today, the true prayer we have as we come before you, Lord, restore unto us the joy of our salvation so that we would worship you truly and fully, not out of guilt, but gratitude and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.